Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. I am pretty excited, actually, to go into what I think is easily the weirdest book that we've done in this series brief, the letter from Jude. Jude is uh, the sixth shortest book of the Bible, and we're going to read it in full. And I just want to offer this kind of gentle warning, content warning before we get started. There is a lot of intense imagery in Jude, and we're going to get into what all of it means. But some of it feels pretty fire and brimstone-y. I think it can bring up a lot of anxiety and stress for readers, especially for queer readers, particularly the references to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. I want to assure you that that is not about queerness and that we are going to talk about what it actually means and how to talk to people who uh, tell us that it is about queerness. But I wanted you to go in fully prepared and I want you to be able to open up and take in a little bit of what the rest of this book is about. So please orient your spirits towards hope and connection and community. Allow God to speak to you and pique your curiosity. We'll go into what a lot of this weirdness means, but enjoy a reading the letter of Jude. The reading for the day is the book of Jude. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, loved by God the Father, and kept safe by Jesus Christ, may you have more and more mercy, peace, and love. Dear friends, I wanted very much to write to you concerning the salvation we share. Instead, I must write to urge you to fight for the faith delivered once and for all to God's holy people. Godless people have slipped in among you. They turn the grace of our God into unrestrained immorality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Judgment was passed against them a long time ago. I want to remind you of something you already know very well. The Lord who once saved a people out of Egypt later destroyed those who didn't maintain their faith. I remind you, too, of the angels who didn't keep their position of authority but deserted their own home. The Lord has kept them in eternal change in the underworld until the judgment of the great day. In the same way, Sodom and Gomorrah and neighboring towns practiced immoral sexual relations and pursued other sexual urges. By undergoing the punishment of eternal fire, they serve as a warning. Yet even knowing this, these dreamers in the same way pollute themselves, reject authority, and slander the angels. The archangel Michael, when he urged, argued with the devil about Moses' body, did not dare charge him with slander. Instead, he said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people slander whatever they don't understand. They are destroyed by what they know instinctively as though they were irrational animals. They are damned. For they follow in the footsteps of Cain. For profit they give themselves over to Balaam's error. They are destroyed in the uprising of Korah. These people are like jagged rocks just below the surface of the water waiting to snag you when they join your love feasts. They feast with you without reverence. They care only for themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by the winds. Fruitless autumn trees twice dead uprooted. 
wild waves of the sea foaming up their own shame, wandering stars from whom the darkness of the underworld is reserved forever. Enoch, who lived seven generations after Adam, prophesied about these people when he said, See, the Lord comes with his countless holy ones to execute judgment on everyone and to convict convict everyone about every ungodly deed they have committed in their ungodliness as well as all the harsh things that sinful ungodly people have said against him. These are fault-finding grumblers living according to their own desires. They speak arrogant words and they show partiality to people when they want a favor in return. But you, dear friends, remember the words spoken beforehand by the apostle of our our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the end time, scoffers will come living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions. Since they don't have the spirit, they are worldly. But you, dear friends, build each other up on the foundation of your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep each other in the love of God. Wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will give you eternal life. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save some by snatching them from the fire. Fearing God, have mercy on some, hating even the clothing contaminated by their sinful urges. To the one who is able to protect you from failing and to present you blameless and rejoicing before his glorious presence. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, belong glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. The word of the Lord for the people of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So that is the book of Jude, the sixth shortest book in the Bible. And there is a lot in it. It is dense. I'm just going to put my metaphor for this book out there right away. I think this is like a, like a, like a gooey, chewy, seven-layer bar at a potluck. And I think that we need to understand what every one of those layers is in order to have a cohesive experience of the whole. Because uh, without those different layers and understanding how this came to be, it can kind of just feel like a mess. Um, But I do want to start by talking about that reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. And I want to start with a confession. I read these books and uh, the first thing that I do is just read them and take them in when I prepare for these sermons. And when, even though I, like, I know this reference, I've, I've dealt with this reference before, it's not a super popular one to, to harm queer people with, but it does come up. And, uh, and even so, even with all that background, even knowing that that's not what this is about, when I read Jude for the first time this week in preparing for this sermon, my gut went, <gasps> like my heart just seized a little bit. My chest got a little tighter at that. And I I would say the things for me are the reference to Sodom and Gomorrah and then the phrase sexual immorality. And I I just want to confess, like I, I hear those things. I hear that in the scripture. And I think, oh God, they're talking about me again. 
And, and it can be this really terrifying um, experience to go to the scriptures and to, you know, not necessarily know what you're expecting or like maybe realize, okay, this is an ancient text. There's going to be a lot of dense stuff in here. There may even be some fire and brimstone or whatever. It's, it's different when all of a sudden you come across something and you're like, ooh, that's about me. Ooh, I did it. I'm going to burn. Which I just want to be really clear with you. Like that happened to me. That happens to me. Even though I want to be even more clear with you, I feel extraordinarily confident that that is not what this text is talking about. And, and what that means for me is that I have been traumatized by abuse of the Bible and weaponization of Scripture to the point where reading Scripture at all can be really triggering for me, um, especially with these references to Sodom and Gomorrah. And what was interesting for me to realize was that uh, the phrase sexual immorality is also one of those triggers. Because I know that Sodom and Gomorrah is... Uh, uh, I know that the traditional Jewish reading of Sodom and Gomorrah is about the weirdest word, hospitality, and, and basically the relationship to the stranger. We know that because of the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, including the book of Ezekiel, which says clearly the sin of Sodom was, you know, inhospitality, basically. Um, and so the, the Bible itself clarifies what Sodom and Gomorrah is about. And so when I was reading this, I was like, oh, right, but this is the one that people say, like, no, it's not about that, or no, it's not just about that. It's about sexual immorality. And it reminded me that one of my dear friends um, who kind of came from a more conservative family uh, was, was in a conflict uh, about, about the text and basically got into, like, an argument with her parents about what does the Bible say about sexuality and the verses that her dad kept coming back to were all ones about sexual immorality, as though sexual immorality implied queerness. That that was so deeply embedded in his understanding of Christian sexual ethics that the phrase sexual immorality to him meant gay. And I, that's absurd. That's so absurd. That's clearly not in the context of what was being written. That's not even in the context of how the scriptures have uh, historically been used. And yet, it's so embedded in our culture that that's what that phrase brings up for him. That's what that phrase brought up for her before she was like, wait a minute, this doesn't even make sense. And apparently, I learned while reading Jude, that's what that phrase brings up for me. That that phrase, I'm like, oh God, they are talking about me. Wait, no, I know they're not talking about me. So what are they talking about? And why are they using this phrase? Oh wait, this phrase has nothing to do with me. That was an internal process I had. So I just want to share that with you. And I want to share, I've, I've tried through the series brief to like, you know, uh, equip you all with a different resource um, or idea or a uh, way to be more confident in your interpretation of the text with every reading. Um, so you could go back to the first sermon in this series for suggestions about translations and different Bibles to use. Um, I referenced the Bible Project last week. That's a, an online video summary of a lot of these books. Um, I have a book that I'm actually going to reference again by the scholar Tom Hanks, which I think is delightful, um, different Tom Hanks, uh, that I think is a great companion to the Bible that I referenced the second week. In any case, the resource I want to give you this week is a little bit more vague, and it is the phrase clobber verse. So if you are a person who is LGBTQIA identified, and if you are reading the Bible 
going, oh God, they're talking about me. Or if you are a straight person, uh, a straight cis person reading the Bible and uh, also kind of saying, what do I do with these passages? And you come across something that feels abusive or feels like it's been used to abuse queer people. I want you to remember the, the phrase clobber verse. That is the shorthand that has been given to the handful of scriptures that have been used to abuse queer people, um, you know, in the modern church. And between that phrase, Claververse, and your trusty friend Google, you can usually find some resources. And so one of the first things I did, so the first thing I did with this book, read it through. Then my heart clenched and went, ah! And I was like, I know this isn't right. So I took my trusty phrase, Claververse, and the text here, uh, Jude, I didn't even bother putting the verse in. Jude is short. And, uh, and I brought that to my, uh, my other friend, Google. I said, Clobberverse Jude into Google search engine. And immediately I got a list of queer affirming um, commentaries and assessments and analyses on what that text actually meant. And as soon as I clicked through, I was, it was like, it was like, it was like walking through a waterfall. I was like, oh, right, get that muck off of me. Wash me clean, Jesus. Because that, that assumption about what sexual immorality is, um, that assumption that Sodom and Gomorrah means queerness, that is sin, that is, that is filth from the earth, that is anti-queer nonsense that I need to be stripped of in order to understand the true meaning of this text. And those those blogs, those sites, the good work of queer-affirming biblical scholars is accessible on the internet now. And, and, it, and it washed me clean in an instant. And it reminded me of what this text actually means, which we're going to get into. But I just want you to hold on to that. Clobberverse. Um, Anti-queer folks don't call them clobberverses because they don't feel like they are abusing the scriptures. And so clobberverse is like a key into those corners of the internet that are actually going to give you uh, a hopeful, queer-affirming reading. So I just want to acknowledge that, uh, like I said, the Bible can be really triggering for a lot of people, myself included. And I want to clarify that, like, it's not, that's not the Bible. Like, the Bible isn't the one causing the harm. It's all the people weaponizing the Bible, interpreting queerphobia into the Bible, using the Bible to harm people. And that's not the Bible hurting you. But, oh man, that is still real hurt. And it's still real hurt that gets brought up every time we read something like this in the Bible because that's what a trigger is. And so we need healing, we need protection, we need support, and we need to redeem our relationship to these phrases and words so that we can enter into Scripture um, in right relationship with it so that we aren't being re-harmed by all the hate that's been spewed at us. And I also just want to name that, like, I have you know, that dynamic where, like, I read these phrases that aren't meant to harm queer people, but the harm that's been done to me is so thorough that now I am starting to harm myself. I'm, like, reminded of that, and I'm like, oh, that's me. Yeah, I'm bad. Yeah, queerness is terrible. Like, that's internalized queer phobia, and that is, uh, <laughs> that is letting the terrorists win. Because really the point of terror and terrorizing people, the way that queer people have been terrorized by Christians abusing the Bible, is so that we live in such a state of panic about it that, that we police ourselves 
And that's what's happening. So I observed myself policing myself around queerness or harming myself around queerness, reading the scriptures in that moment. So I just want to name that and say, God, we need healing. God, please bring healing to me and to our church um, and to anyone who has been harmed by uh, the abuse of scriptures. Will you come like that waterfall of fresh truth and wash us clean of all of that internalized garbage so that we can approach your text open and ready to hear your beauty and not the harm of the world. Amen. So let's get into it. All right, so there's a lot else here, and I would be super curious to hear what else stood out to you if you want to drop that stuff in comments. And so I'm just going to summarize a little bit um, as I go um, and, and, and do my best to, to work us through this short but very dense book. So first of all, who wrote it? Uh, or rather, before that, who is Jude? Jude is a brother of Jesus, but he's not the most famous brother of Jesus, which is why you hear uh, Jude, uh, a slave of Jesus Christ, and the brother of James. James is the most famous brother of, of Jesus, and so everyone would know James. And he's like, well, I'm Jesus' brother's brother. <laughs> so you know that I'm part of the crew. But he's not the most famous. A brief aside about the word slave. We talked about this in the book of Philemon. Um, there is this dynamic in scripture of using slave and master, but only as relationship between self and Jesus or self and God. Um, that's actually a radical way to undermine the idea that any human being can be that subservient to another human being, that we are only ever that subservient to God. Um, but it's still kind of a troubling thing, again, to read in our scriptures. And I think that that word can be another trigger because it has been used, again, to abuse people and to justify the kidnapping and enslavement of peoples throughout history. But we got Jude, who's like, hey, my dude is Jesus. P.S. I'm part of the family, so take me seriously. Uh, if you haven't heard of me, you've heard of my brother James. And Jesus's brothers were not really part of the crew while Jesus was alive, but after his death and resurrection, um, we learn in Acts that they became, along with Mary, his mother, really important leaders in the church. And in particular, uh, James builds up the church in Jerusalem. Now, throughout scripture, we actually see some tension between James in Jerusalem and the teachings of that church with which Jude is affiliated, and Paul, who has a pretty different take on some things. So again, if anyone is ever telling you that there's like total consistency throughout scripture, there are a lot of ways that you can understand that that's like not really true. One of them is that even in the New Testament, these apostles of Jesus in the immediate aftermath of Jesus' resurrection have really different takes on how to be faithful disciples. So Jude is the brother of James, and so there's debate about who wrote this. Maybe it was Jude. It's one of the earliest letters that was ever written. And some people are like, oh, it wasn't Jude. It was somebody who, like, said he was Jude, which is a super common thing. And now more scholars are like, yeah, but it probably could have been Jude. That would have been fine. So Jude, uh, this letter, was written either by the brother of Jesus in Jerusalem or someone else kind of in that inner circle. And who was this letter written to? Well, the church in Jerusalem, which was the capital of the kind of Jewish state, was made up of, unsurprisingly, Jewish people. And so they were folks, you know, 
Paul was working with a lot of uh, different churches and, and talking to a lot of former Gentiles, which is just the word for everyone else who wasn't Jewish, um, and advocating like, hey, yeah, you know what? You can follow Jesus without first becoming Jewish. That's cool. Um, but they had a whole different set of culture and myth- mythology and religious practice and, um, and just sort of context. So that's Paul. And I think that's one of the reasons that we often, as modern Christians, uh, choose to preference Paul because he's speaking to folks who don't necessarily have Jewish background. And a lot of modern Christians don't have a lot of Jewish background. Meanwhile, in Jerusalem, Jude and James are writing letters related to that church, which is um, a deeply Jewish community in the center, the heart of Judaism in their context. Um, and unsurprisingly, they actually end up sounding a lot more like Jesus, who was Jewish and speaking to deeply Jewish communities. So uh, one of the reasons this, this book is so dense and so rich and so overwhelming to a non-Jewish audience is because there are a lot of references, just like deep cut references, not only to the Hebrew scriptures that we understand now as the Old Testament, but also to other important Jewish texts that didn't even make the cut and aren't in the canon, which is the official Bible. So there's references to Jewish literature and other Jewish mythology that Jude's audience would have just known about that we don't most of the time. The point of this letter is, you know, Jude comes in and he's like, you know what, I would love to just talk to you about the gospel and how great Jesus is, but I can't. You know why I can't? Because there are corrupt leaders up in here and I've got to warn you about them. And that's kind of how the rest of the letter goes, is a warning about these corrupt leaders and uh, an urge to respond to them in some very particular ways. So he says there are corrupt teachers um, that you need to be on guard against. You need to contend for the faith. You need to defend the the true faith. Now, interestingly, this is not defend the true teachings. This is not defend the true ideas about Jesus. And he's not actually coming after these teachers for bad theology. The, The author of this letter is saying, the teachers in your midst, they're not living right. They're exposed by their immoral behavior. So he doesn't even get into what they may or may not be teaching because it doesn't matter. He's saying they are living in a way that demonstrates that they think that the gospel of Jesus, the grace afforded us by God, gives them license to behave in any kind of way they want, specifically when it comes to sex and money. They are abusing their power around sex and money, and that is exposing them as terrible leaders, immoral leaders, and you actually have to be on guard against that. Now, already we're seeing a little bit of that kinship with James and the tension with Paul, because this debate, this difference of how they approach it, is about how do we respond to grace. Paul has a really strong emphasis on saying, hey, we're all sinners. We all screw up. The most important thing about grace is that it covers everything. And that no matter what we do, no matter what we, uh, how, how badly we mess up, God's love is there for us. It covers our sin. Our sin is wiped away so long as we believe that God's love is ultimate. As we submit to God's love in our belief, that is the way to follow Jesus and that grace will cover us all. 
Meanwhile, James is like, yeah, believe in Jesus. Do what he said. Believing in Jesus means following Jesus' teachings. It means living right. And if you're not living right, then you're not actually believing in anything Jesus said. What you have to do is treat people well. James was really, really concerned with things like class differences and power dynamics. James preached a lot, or in his letter, James talks a lot about partiality and some people getting more favor or more power than others. I think of that as the contemporary version of privilege versus oppression. James is really concerned with these dynamics. He says, if we take Jesus seriously, we are to build the kingdom here on earth. And if you say you believe, but you're just behaving like all the other people who are out there who are believing in the Roman system and who are believing in imperial theology, then your belief means nothing. And so you've got this, uh, this, uh, this tension that can be distilled now in the argument of uh, grace versus works. Are we saved by grace through faith alone, as, as Paul says, or does our faith hinge on our ability to actually transform our lives, as James argues? Now, I believe the answer is that both are true, but they, there is a real tension there, certainly in the way that each of these teachers describes it. And Jude, the author of this letter, is squarely on Team James. And so he says, these immoral leaders, I don't care what they're teaching about grace. They are not living like Jesus taught. And because of that, they're causing harm. One of the phrases Jude uses here is love feast. They're coming to your love feasts and they're defiling them. They're coming and they're going to, they're like jagged rocks that are going to snag you. They're going to cause harm and they're, and they're coming to your love feast to do this. Love feast is such a beautiful term and uh, it's one that some modern Christians still use. The Moravians are really into it. Um, and it, it, describes the communion, the Eucharist, the thing that we do when we gather in person where we have the bread and the wine and we remember the words that Jesus said, except that it gives us a hint, a reminder that back in the day when this was written, it wasn't just a highly ritualized, you know, piece of bread, sip of wine. It was a whole meal. And Interestingly, the reason it ended up changing was because of some of those power dynamics that the rich would come early because they could because they didn't have to stay at work late and they would eat all the food and get drunk on all the wine and then the working class folks and servants and slaves would come late. There'd be no more food and everyone would be drunk. Paul's uh, response to this because he wanted to spiritualize everything and everything was an idea was he said, well, let's not even make it a meal. Eat at home and we'll come do this ritual together. And that's what the church ran with. But the church in Jerusalem, led by James and Jude and others, they were challenging folks to just stop abusing their power. Stop giving preference to the rich. Stop showing partiality. So again, these are some of those kind of rifts here. And you can tell already that Jude might have really fit in pretty well at Zhao on that regard. So Jude says that this invasion of leaders who are acting immorally is predictable. It's not just a coincidence. Um, and so he starts off by giving three examples from the Old Testament. Old Testament. The first 
is Israelites who have their wilderness rebellion. This is a reference to the book of Numbers. And God bringing people out of slavery in the Exodus, and then people rebelling against God and consequently never finding their way to the next promised land, but dying in the wilderness because they weren't uh, on board with God. The next reference that he makes is um, angels in rebellion. Now this, I think, is the weirdest one um, that's super cool, and it references both Genesis 6, which is within our canon, and First Enoch, which is not in the Bible, but was in the ethos of Jewish literature. And it shows how back in the day in the early church, the things that were officially considered scripture was really flexible. It was sort of up for debate. And so here is Jude being a really good Jewish scholar, Jewish Christian, bringing in Jewish interpretation of Genesis 6. And that is when the angels who in Genesis are considered like real corporeal beings with bodies, rebelled against God, left their post, came down to earth, uh, procreated with human beings, and had angel-human giant hybrid babies who were evil, and they were called the Nephilim. And that is why God sent the flood, and destroyed everyone but Noah. Now again, none of this is spelled out in Jude, but everyone that Jude is writing to would know that reference instantly. That number one, we've got the Israelites in the wilderness rebelling against God. Two, we have these angels who decide to leave their posts, um, procreate, have sex with, with humans, with human women actually specifically. Um, so male angels having sex with human women who give birth to Nephilim, these giant hybrids that are evil. And then, item three, this third reference, this is where we have Sodom and Gomorrah and sexual immorality. Now, the Clobberverse search helpfully pointed me towards the idea that because the violence in Sodom and Gomorrah is an act of rape, oh, it was attempted rape of angels and then um, committed rape against women, that, the that that is sexually immoral. Like, the, like, plain as day, that is the sexual immorality that we're talking about. And a deeper reading of Jude specifically, and, and the proximity to this previous reference to angels having sexual relationships with human women, not human men, but human women, is a reminder that actually the thing that's going on here that they're referencing in Jude is the concept of sexual contact between human beings and angels. In fact, Jude calls it strange flesh. And oh my gosh, I'm so excited to give you this little tidbit. The word for strange in Greek is heteros. And so this is talking about sexuality, evil, evil sexuality that is heteros, which is literally where we get the word heterosexual. That was, that was a little fun discovery. Again, thanks to my man, Tom Hanks. Um, so, so now we see the argument that's being set up. That the Israelites weren't listening to God. The angels weren't listening to God. And they were sexually immoral by, um, by this 
sexual contact between angels and humans. Um, and Sodom and Gomorrah were immoral, again, because of sexual contact between angels and humans, um, and also sexual violence um, and assault. And then, <laughs> then Jude moves to like, and so what do we do about that? There are, ooh, there are these bad people. What do we do about that? We should, we should rebuke them. We should throw them out. We should curse them. We should identify them and, and whatever, right? No. Now Jude brings in another piece of uh, Jewish literature called the Testament of Moses. And the Testament of Moses details, uh, it's, it's sort of like creative fiction around the end of, of Moses' life based on details from Deuteronomy. And creative fiction is, a, is like a very, very loose um, genre comparison because it's not quite like that either. But it is a creative retelling. And in this creative retelling, after the death of Moses... The archangel Michael and the devil are sitting there arguing over Moses' dead body. And the devil is talking shit about Moses. And archangel Michael is like, I know that he's wrong. I know that he's blaspheming. Moses is good and holy. And so, so here, here Michael is in the same situation. The devil is acting immorally and saying terrible things. So what does he do? Does Michael come at the devil? No. In the story of the Testament of Moses, Michael says, may the Lord rebuke you. Which is basically to say, God's going to have judgment on you. And like, I think that I could have judgment on you. I think I have pretty good judgment myself. But I'm going to let God do that. And I'm not even going to deal with this. I'm not even going to engage you on this. I'm not going to try and, and accuse you of blasphemy because God's going to do that for me. So this is a little bit of a warning to say like, hey, you've got these bad people, these corrupt leaders in your midst, but don't, you don't, don't go after them. Don't try and engage them. Don't try and, and take them on head on. Don't try and argue with them about it. Let God rebuke them. However, Jude goes on to make a boatload of more references. He gives three more examples of how corrupt people, corrupt people, right? This is sort of a uh, cascading sin version of our, our current phrase, hurt people, hurt people. He references Cain, who murdered his brother Abel and then went on to found a city that was extremely violent. He references Balaam, who was an evil sorcerer who tries to, um, to kind of seduce Israel and eventually brings them into practices of idolatry and sexual sin. He references Korah, who leads a rebellion against Moses with disastrous consequences. Um, again, you know, these are references from the Hebrew scriptures, from Genesis and the book of Numbers. And again, all of these would have been very quick, like, oh, you know, you know about Cain and Balaam and Korah? And they would have been like, boom, boom, boom. All of these references of, oh yeah, corrupt leaders will corrupt the people. So again, it's a warning. It's a warning. And steeped in... Scripture comes a barrage of metaphors, the way that these uh, bad leaders are going to impact the people. Jude references um, Ezekiel, Proverbs, Isaiah, by calling them selfish shepherds and clouds without rain and foaming waves. 
And so Judah's really establishing himself as, uh, like, there are, he's like, I got receipts. I have done my research. I know what I'm talking about. I'm being a really, really good Jewish person right now. I have the word of God on my side. And I'm just reminding you, I'm just reminding you of what the heart of the gospel is. And so as he continues on in this warning, he goes back to First Enoch. And so some of these most fiery things, right, are from First Enoch, which is, again, that, that book of Jewish literature that didn't make it into the final cut of our version of the Bible. But that thing that he's quoting in First Enoch is quoting uh, Deuteronomy, Zechariah, is Isaiah. So it's layer on layer on layer on layer. This is our seven-layer bar. And I know it feels like one big gooey mess, but there are individual pieces here that we can pull apart if we want to know where it comes from. Again, we have a reference in verse 16 to partiality, another hint that he's on Team James. And then he says, um, you know, in verses 17 to 19, he's talking about the apostles, these new teachers, these new teachers that are leading the church, saying, you know, we knew that these corrupt teachers would come. That Jude isn't the one introducing this idea. He's like, they told us. The apostles told us. And the apostles told us because Jesus told them, which we have in Matthew chapter 7. So, at the end of this barrage of references, what do we do, Jude? Jude says, the people are God's new temple. We need a firm foundation, and that foundation can't come from these immoral leaders who are just doing whatever they want, who are using God's grace as a license to sin. We've got to hold it together. We've got to contend for the faith. We have to fight for the heart of the gospel. The foundation of the gospel, the good news, is holy faith, which Jude understands as faithfulness, dedication to prayer, the love of God shown through obedience. Obedience and obey, those might be other trigger words, so I want to uh, acknowledge that here. But to Jude, that's again that call to action that says, hey, if you really believe in what you're saying, you're going to act different. We're going to change the way things are. I mentioned that in Philemon, Paul really displays a, a belief in an apocalyptic faith that is coming soon here and now. Jesus is coming back. All things will be made new. The kingdom of God is near. And that means like Jesus in the flesh coming back within my lifetime or, or one generation past. And Jude really believes in this too. And you can see how important that is in terms of understanding the call to upend social structures. Jude is saying, hey, we're building a new world of justice. We're not just sitting around on our hands saying God will forgive us. We're saying because of God's grace, we are called to a whole different way of being. We are called into a new way of being where the abuse of power, which is really at the heart of sexual and financial sin, right? The abuse of power has no place here, has no place in the church. And so even if you say the right things, and even if you're teaching the right things about God, if the way it's playing out in your life is that you're recreating these systems of empire, then you are corrupted by the, by the empire. And the corruption of the empire, it works its way in. 
And it destroys the people because the people are the people of God, the people of the kingdom. The foundation of the gospel is that we are all made one. We are united in our holiness, in our care for one another, in the vision of justice and a different kind of world. And so we need that firm foundation. We need to stay alert, Jude says. Stay alert to what's going on and be ready for Jesus who is coming to build this new kingdom. Lay the foundation here and now. God has given us the tools. We need to contend for the faith. And what do we do with those people who are in error? What do we do with those people who are, are, are corrupting that faith? We're supposed to learn from that Archangel Michael. We don't actually come for them. We don't actually get into it with them. We have mercy on them, says Jude. We have mercy on those who are in error. But we stay in the love of God. And to stay in the love of God is to have faith not just with our intellect, but with our life, with our whole life. To follow Jesus is to obey his teachings, is to live differently. It's to have hope that the kingdom is now and we have the power to build it. It's quite a ride in a thousand words, yeah? This is another example of why it's so important to read the scriptures with context. And one of the contexts that we have lost here now in our culture is the meaning of all those different references and what we're doing instead of looking them looking into them like not not we here not we you but like we as the past couple hundred years of american christianity instead of doing our homework and understanding what was going on in that beautiful highly specific context We've imported our own meanings and our own prejudice, specifically queer phobia. So how is it that in a short little book with so much going on, including, you know, human-angel hybrid evil giants and the devil and an angel arguing over Moses' dead body, that the only actual reference that we make to this text anymore is a passing reference to Sodom and Gomorrah that we import queerphobia onto, even though the literal words on the page are about strange flesh, heteros sexuality. How? This is the Bible that God has given us, but this is the layer of abuse and misuse that has taken us away from the richness and truth and density and weirdness And brought us into distraction and harm. And so that is why we come together. That is why we do this. That is why we go deep. That is why we revisit. That's why we reach out, you know, to our friend Google. That's why we walk through the waterfall and approach these texts new and fresh-eyed and open and curious. Because there is a vision in here for a world that is made new. There is warning to not get sucked back into the values of empire. There is the urge to have mercy and to stay in the love of God, living lives of holiness and justice, of mercy and compassion and joy and hope. And that is what we want. That is what we want for each other and that is what God wants for us. Will you pray with me? God of all creation, you have layer and layer and layer and layer of goodness in your scriptures, in our history, in the history of your people, in the history of your stories and the mythology of your people. God, may we come with curiosity 
and open hearts. May we discover that messy, beautiful, joyous gift. And may the harm of the world be washed off of us. May we be protected and healed. May we join arms with those who are faithful. May we have mercy on those who have been in error. And may we stay in your love with clear heads and hearts awaiting your return by building a world of justice and hope. Amen.